Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Now you recall from Zechariah's chapter 1 and 2 that God has sent Zechariah with a message uh, to really uh, encourage the leaders of Israel to finish building the temple. And in chapters 1 and 2, he begins that message by saying, first of all, rebuild the relationship with me. And so he calls Israel to repent. And he tells them that if they repent of their sins, then he would relent of punishing them for their sins. He also makes a promise to repay Israel's enemies, uh, those who have been trying to uh, stop them from being the people of God, and he promises to restore to Israel the things that they have lost. Now, ultimately, what God promises is that he's going to return to Israel himself, and he's going to fill the earth with a kind of reverence for him, a respect and a love for him. That's what we see in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 3, we get this problem. You see there in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, uh, Satan shows up on the scene, and he accuses Joshua, the high priest of Israel, who represents all of Israel before God. He points out Joshua's sin and Joshua's iniquity, and what we learn in chapter 3 is that there's something else that must be done in order to prepare people to be in relationship with God. There must be atonement made for their sin. And in chapter 3, the stunning thing is this. Not that God calls Israel to make atonement for themselves, but he promises that he would remove their iniquity. And so God has this plan. He says in a single day, he's going to remove the iniquity of the entire land. And that, of course, is pointing forward to the day that Christ sacrifices himself for our sins. Well, that brings us down to chapter 4, which is our text for this morning. There's still a problem. After calling the people back to himself and after promising the removal of their iniquity, the, the basic task is still undone. They have not completed the rebuilding of the temple in order to worship God as he's instructed. They've not yet finished the assignment. The work has stalled. Opposition has built up. The people are discouraged. And in this context, God gives Zechariah a word for Israel. And we might sort of put it in three points. The first point is this. The Holy Spirit, or God himself, will build the temple. The Holy Spirit will build the temple. The second point is this. That God will encourage his workers. God will encourage his workers. That's what we see in verses 8 to 10. And then finally, God will oversee the project until the end. God will oversee. He will watch over them until the end. You guys hear me still? Okay, amen. So let's look at this, Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We'll read the chapter, and then we'll consider these three points. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, 
not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised a day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know these, what these are? I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And the Lord had a blessing to his word. Well, the first thing we want to see is that God has come to Israel and given them this task to rebuild the temple. And yet Israel has hit this stumbling block, this stopping point, which we'll see in a moment. And the first thing that God wants to do in order to encourage his people and to re-engage his people is to let them know that he, by his spirit, will be the one who rebuilds the temple. That's what we see in verses 1 to 7. Verse 1, the angel comes and kind of shakes Zechariah. Zechariah says, it was like I was asleep, and he awakened me, and, and he asked me what I saw. And, and Zechariah reports his vision of a, a golden lampstand in verse 2. Lampstand had a bowl on top of it. The word bowl can also be translated pour. So this was likely a bowl used to pour oil to the lampstand. The lampstand also had seven lamps and seven lips or ridges on it, verse 2. And Zechariah also sees two olive trees on the right-hand side and the left-hand side of the bowl. Now, olive trees in ancient Israel were prized because they gave this, this, this wonderful, expensive, beautiful oil, olive oil. And this olive oil would have been used in the temples of Israel to, to light the candles in the temple. But this oil also symbolized something else in the Old Testament. Or should I say someone else? It's often associated with God the Holy Spirit. Zechariah wants Israel to know what all this means in verse 4. So, so he asks, and, and the angel explains in verses 6 to 7. Look there again. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel was the governor of Israel. He was one of the leaders who led Israel out of their exile back into the land. And he was one of the leaders called by God to rebuild the city walls and to rebuild the temple. God wants Zerubbabel, the governor, and all of Israel to know that his work must be accomplished by his power. Israel cannot do what, what, what God wants them to do in their own power. God the Holy Spirit, by his spirit, he will accomplish it. God says to Jerubbabel, no, this thing will be done by me. 
Again, the lampstand and the olive trees symbolizing God's presence with his people and the Holy Spirit's presence and, and flowing among his people. Just as the oil flowed and kept the lamp lit, so the Spirit's presence and power would provide what they needed to build the temple. Not by man's power, but by God's. And when God does it, there's no obstacle that can stop it. No obstacles but grace. And so verse 7, Zechariah then addresses this great mountain. It's not clear what this mountain was. The mountain could have been a satanic opposition that we see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Or it could have been the fear that was on the people because of their enemies. Ezra chapter 3, verse 3 says that because of the opposition that they were confronting, the, the people feared. Or it could have been the opposition itself that came from those foreign leaders. They wrote letters to Artaxerxes, accusing Jerusalem of all kinds of things. They wrote the king saying, listen, if you let them rebuild this temple, they're going to cause all kinds of sedition and rebellion and treason against you. That happened in Ezra 4. And again in Ezra 5. And each time they began to work, they faced this opposition. But whatever the mountain represents... It cannot stop the work of the Lord. Before Zerubbabel or in the presence of, the Zeru of Zerubbabel, by the Spirit of the Lord, even this mountain shall be as a plain. It shall be level and flat. It shall have no ridges, no, no hurdles to climb over, no, no valleys to work through. The Lord will lay the land flat and straight out before Zerubbabel so that the work will go on without any hindrance and opposition be no uphill to the work. Just smooth sailing. In fact, the word of the Lord assures Zerubbabel that Zerubbabel will put the, notice there at the end, the, the top stone on the temple once it's done. Zerubbabel is going to place the capstone on top of the temple. The building will be done and the people will cry out grace, grace to it. They will worship God in the temple, not because of their own strength, but because they recognize that God in his grace has done the work. They'll praise God for a kindness they received, but didn't deserve. You see, there's no task so difficult that the spirit of God can't accomplish it. And there's no mountain so tall that the grace of God can't climb it. See, where the Spirit of God and the grace of God are present, there's nothing that can stop the work of God through his people. And this is what Zerubbabel comes, or excuse me, Zechariah comes to tell Zerubbabel in verses 1 to 7. But he has a second message now in verses 8 to 10. God there wants to encourage his people Verse 8 begins with, then the word of the Lord came to me. See, verse 1 started with a vision, but verse 8 begins with this formula that's used of, of prophecy. So now the, the vision of verses 1 to 7 have the same meaning overall as the prophecy of verses 8 to 10. God first says it in a picture. Then as if he doesn't want Israel to be confused by it, he just gives it to him in plain word. But here in verses 8 to 10, 10, I think the Lord also is saying more than simply, you're going to finish the temple. I think the Lord says what he says here 
that gives Zerubbabel, the leader, confidence that he will finish it. He's encouraging the leader of Israel and the people of Israel that the work will be done. Look there at verse 8. In the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now why would, why would the Lord need to specify that the hands of Zerubbabel will finish this work? I think it was because this leader, this godly man, was discouraged in the work of the Lord. Keep your finger there in Zechariah and turn back with me to Ezra chapter 3. Using one of the Bibles we passed out, you should find it on page 390. I want to trace a few verses from Ezra 3 through to Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2, to kind of show you what, what was going on there and, and why this specific message to Zerubbabel to encourage this leader. Ezra chapter 3, verse 8 says this, In the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, so they've been there two years, two months, Zerubbabel, that's our guy, the son of Shealtiel, and, Je and Yeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning. They started to work on the, on the temple, on the foundation, and the work started well enough. So look down in verse 10. It says, the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. And then notice what happens in verse 11. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verses 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. You see what's happening there? Some of the young Israelites, they call the praise break. You know, they start singing shackles. You don't want no shackles on my feet. I need to dance. And they ran out the panorama room, had a little go-go going on, man. And some old D.C. folks know what's up with that. <laughs> and they, they, they just jamming, right? They're they just praising the Lord. The foundation is laid. They are, they are jubilant. But, but notice now the old saints, the old saints who lived long enough to see the temple before they were conquered and sent into exile, they see this foundation laid and they weep just as loud. So you got, you got one group just having a praise break and you got another group singing the blues, man. They remember the former glory. And they're looking at this thing, and they're like, this, this ain't it. This ain't what we remember. Then we get to chapter 4 and 5. And that's when Israel's opponents try to stop the rebuilding. So look at Ezra chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. <laughs> this text says, for two whole kingdoms, these people opposed the people of Israel. 
until verse 24 says that the work stopped until the second reign, second year of the reign of Darius. The commentators tells us this means this went on for 16 years. 16 years, and see the words in verses 4 and 5, discouraged, afraid, they are bribed against, they are frustrated in their purposes. After 16 years of, of delay and lawsuits and opposition and harassment, you, you can bet Zerubbabel was probably downcast. You can bet this man who felt a call from God to lead the people to do something for God, facing all of this discouragement, was, was, was broken, was sad, was afraid, was frustrated, and maybe ready to give up. He needed a word from the Lord. Notice Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. You see, this, this man needed a word from the Lord, and God sent them not one prophet, but two. And God spoke to them. And you see the transition between verse 1 and verse 2? They heard this prophecy, probably the very prophecy we're reading in Zechariah chapter 4. And what happens? They go from sitting in their sackcloth and their ashes, mourning and sad and frustrated, to in verse 2, they rise up, the leadership of Israel, and they rebuild the temple. They begin again to do the work of the Lord. Flip back to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 9. And imagine what must have been the encouragement in this verse. When the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Zechariah, and Zechariah says to Zerubbabel, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. I mean, surely Zerubbabel had felt so often that his hands were weak and insufficient. Surely he had tried on numerous occasions by his own strength to complete the work. He must have felt like his hands were, were tied, but, but God says those same hands will finish what they began. Those same weak hands will put the capstone on top of the temple. God sends a word of prophecy to strengthen Zerubbabel's hands for the work. And he goes on. Notice what Zechariah says next. He says, when Zerubbabel finishes the temple... Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Zerubbabel might have his doubts all the way to the end of the project. Isn't that how doubt works sometimes? You're tired, you're discouraged, you're tempted to quit. And having made a good start doesn't mean so much to you anymore. After years of stumbling and faltering. And the Lord encourages you just as he sends Zechariah to Zerubbabel and sends this word of encouragement. And, and you maybe get started again just as Zechariah did or Zerubbabel did. But how many of you know if it don't happen quick, you can still be doubting, can't you? 
And so notice what God does. God ties his word together with Zerubbabel's own work and calling. He says, here's how you're going to know that Zechariah is a prophet. You're going to finish the temple. And in that way, he joins together prophet and governor, prophet and king. He binds his work with his word. And he says, as surely as my word will come to pass, as surely as my word will stand, you will complete the temple. And when you complete the temple, you will know that I sent this prophet to you. It's an amazing thing. The prophet's word and the king's work are one and the same. It's a way of saying we rise and fall together. It's a way of saying, Zerubbabel, you are not alone. As surely as my word will stand, so will your leadership and this temple. And then it's as if the word of the Lord turns to address Israel as a whole. You see that in verse 10? You remember the party that had happened 16 years ago when the foundation was laid? You know, the funny thing about parties is they're great that night, and you remember them well the next day or two, but you can't live for 16 years on a birthday party, can you? You, you can't live for 16 years on some past celebration. The young people praise God with all their might then, but I'm guessing 16 years later, they sound just like the old people. That together they are discouraged, together that they are lamenting, together they are singing the blues full of disappointment at the unfinished work of God. God says to them, all of Israel in verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Jerusalem. In other words, beloved, their sorrow will give way to celebration. Though they look down on the small things when they began, they will rejoice again when the Spirit of the Lord completes the temple. They will see Zerubbabel holding in his own hand the plumb line, this tool used for measuring the, the uprightness and the completeness of a finished project. They're going to see Zerubbabel take the measure of the, of the fullness of God's work in the completion of the temple, and they are going to rejoice again. They're going to see what's like the final inspection. Zerubbabel walks through the house, checking to make sure everything is done well. And they are going to rejoice at the soundness of what God builds. So God sends his word to this embattled leader to encourage him and the people to continue in the work. God builds by his spirit. God encourages his people. Number three, God will oversee the entire project. This is what we see in verses 11 to 14, or excuse me, the end of chapter 10 down to verse 14. Verse 10 says this, These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Now, these seven here refers, I think, back to verse 2, to the seven lamps. Those lamps with their light are symbolic of God's eyes covering the entire earth. Notice, God is no tribal God. He, he sees the whole globe. He sees the whole creation. His eyes are running through all of creation, observing his creation, taking note of his creation, particularly his people. And so they are seeing here the, the perfect vision of God. Zechariah is telling Israel, God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Nothing escapes his all-seeing eyes. The Lord watches over his people, and he's watching over his people as they do his work. I notice in verses 11 through 14, 
Zechariah wants to know what, what one other symbol in the vision means. Like a lot of Old Testament prophets, he didn't immediately understand what God was saying through the vision. And I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. The number of times Zechariah said, man, what you talking about? And the angel like, you don't know what these things mean? Like, no, that's why I'm asking you, Doc. Tell her, brother, what does this stuff mean? And so in verses 12 and 13, he's like, what do the olive trees stand for? I know many of you want to know as well. <laughs> but that's a lesson for us. God's word is not so easy that you read it casually and you get all the meaning. No, God's word is like a, a coal encased diamond. Uh, you've got to chip at it. You've got to peck at it. You've got to break apart the coal until you get to the jewel of God's word. That's why a lazy man will never plumb the depths of God's mind. Oh, it takes work to understand God's word. And part of the work is precisely what Zechariah does here, calling to the Lord, give me understanding. What does this mean? Reading God's word prayerfully, asking God to teach through his word. Notice what happens in verses 11 and 12. Uh, Zechariah asks about these olive trees and these olive branches, and verse 14 gives the answer to that question. God will answer your question for knowledge of his word. And so verse 14, God says this, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So the two olive branches represent two anointed or chosen ones who stand with the Lord. Now commentators differ on what these two refer to. Calvin said that these two refer simply to God's grace supplied to his people. Calvin referred to that pouring out of verse 12 as a, a continuous pouring of God's grace. I think that's possible. But most other commentators say these two anointed ones refer to two people in particular. In fact, refer to two different sets of people at different sets of time. So in the immediate context of Zechariah, these two anointed ones, these two chosen ones are Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. The, the high priest and the king, as it were, those two offices of, of Israel. And most of those commentators will say, hey, this prophecy has a fulfillment in Zechariah's own time, but it also looks beyond Zechariah's time, and it looks to two other anointed ones. Ultimately, to Christ and the Holy Spirit, dwelling with God's people, overseeing them as Lord of the whole earth, carrying out the plans that he has for his people. They stand by the Lord. And it is interesting that when you come to the New Testament, we find both Christ and the Holy Spirit described as interceding with the Father on our behalf. Colossians 3, 1, Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the, in the heavenly places. Romans 8, the Spirit is interceding for us in, in prayer. These chosen ones with God for us. Read this passage as Christians. We need to look for its references to Jesus. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to read the Old Testament in Luke 24, for example. He says that all of it testifies of him. Well, how does this passage with its strange visions, how does, this, how does this relate to us? How does it teach us about Jesus and what does it teach us about us? Well, Matthew chapter 16, 
what does the Lord Jesus promise to build? Not a temple, but his church. And the Lord promises that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Doesn't that sound a great deal like the promise that the great mountain would be flattened into a field? But you may say, but that's the church, Pastor T. It's a little bit of a stretch to compare the church to the temple of Israel in the Old Testament. Well, consider what else the Bible tells us about the church in the New Testament. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, when he says to the Corinthian Christians, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom he lives? Or in chapter 6, verse 19, when he's instructing them to abstain from sexual immorality, he goes on there to talk not just about the whole church, as he does in chapter 3, but each individual member of the church, where he says there, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Lord in whom he lives by his Spirit? So whether we're talking about the individual Christian as a temple or we're talking about the whole of the church as a temple, this is an idea that the New Testament picks up and applies to us. Or write this text down, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Or turn there, if you will. Notice what the Apostle Peter says about the real temple. He says, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house or a temple to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The temple of the Old Testament is just a type. It's a shadow. It's a figure. Christ comes in John's gospel and Christ makes an astounding statement. He says, tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it up again. The people thought he was talking about the stone building that was being rebuilt back in Zechariah's day. But the writer there tells us, no, he was talking about the temple of his own body. Christ had tabernacled among us. He had become God's temple in the world among us. That temple had been torn down in the crucifixion. And three days later in the resurrection, he raised it again. But this Christ is ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he continues his construction project. It's not that he's coming into the world again to to be incarnate and to be a, a temple among us again. It's that he has made us to be the temple of the living God. And each Christian who is saved and and converted is added as a living stone, as a brick in this temple. And he is steadily building his church in whom he lives by his spirit. And all that we're reading in Zechariah about God doing this work by his spirit, God sending encouragement to his people, God overseeing the project, all of this applies to God's church today. It applies to us, ARC. Let me give us four applications as a church family. Four ways in which I pray that we would be able to hold on to Zechariah 4 as we continue this project that God has called us to. We're a young church family, a year and a half. I know it's easy to kind of feel like, oh, we've been doing this for a little bit and to even feel older than we are. But beloved, we're just getting started. We're infants, man. We haven't learned to toddle yet. We haven't learned to wipe our nose real good yet. We need God to do that for us. Let me give us four things to hold on to in light of who we are as a church. Number one, ARC, let us be sure that we build the church 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by man, not by man's might, not by our own strength, not by ingenuity, not by creating some other way, but by the word of God in the power of the Spirit. That's how this church is meant to be built. It's not meant to be built on the cleverness of its preachers. It's not meant to be built on the eloquence of its preachers. It's not meant to be built on the, on the sneakiness or craftiness or scheming or wisdom of its members who find some creative way to not make the gospel offensive and to make hell a little bit less hot or some other such thing. No, it's by the power of God's Spirit that He builds His church. I think this means, as the New Testament epistles tell us, we should be praying to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit of God, to see the Spirit manifest in us all of the fruit that He would produce in His people, to, to see the Spirit working in us to unify us as His people, to beautify us and to make us holy. We don't do this with elbow grease. We do this with spiritual oil, which is the Spirit. So let us, beloved, be seeking the Spirit's power in our lives so that the Spirit will be building this temple, this church, unto God. Number two, ARC, let us be sure we don't grow weary in well-doing. Let's be sure we don't grow weary in well-doing. Zerubbabel and Israel had a lot of opposition. 16 years worth at the highest levels, rival kings and countries were opposing them in the work and discouraging them and bringing lawsuits and all kinds of opposition. And for 16 years, the work of the Lord stopped. Listen, beloved, we will face and have faced opposition from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. Satan opposes the church and he opposes the advance of the gospel in Southeast. But this is our Father's world. Let us not be discouraged because of opposition. Let us not shrink back in fear. Let us, as it were, pick up our trowel and our sword. Let us, as the ancient Israelites rebuilding the wall did, work to lay brick with one hand and work to guard the church with the other. Let us give no credence to the, to the rules and, and, and the ways of men and the laws of men which would gag the gospel and shackle the church. No, we serve a Lord who's higher. We serve a Lord who's greater. We are citizens ultimately of another kingdom and he has left us here to do his bidding. Let us say like the apostles, well, you decide whether it's right or not for us to preach Christ, but we can do no other. Let us not grow weary in loving our neighbors, in volunteering to pass out turkeys, in showing up on Saturdays for evangelism, in coming on Thursday nights to study God's Word and to pray together. Let us not grow weary in knocking on the door of our neighbors and inviting them to dinner, seeing a need and serving a need. For this promise we have written for us in the Bible, that if we would not faint, we will reap. We will reap if we do not give up. ARC, let's keep working. Number three, ARC, let us be sure to rejoice even in the small victories we have. Uh, if you ask me who was right in Ezra when the young people had a praise break and the old people sang the blues, I think it was the young people. They weren't finished yet. They just made a start. And maybe their, their hearts were a little bit too 
clappy happy. But they were surely right to praise God for every evidence of God's grace among them. They were surely right to praise God for the laying of a foundation for a temple and a building which would soar into the sky. They were surely right to praise God that he had brought them out of exile, brought them back to the land, given them ability even in the face of enemies to begin the work. And they were surely right to hope that in beginning the work, God would give them grace to finish the work. Or we are not yet what we're going to be. God has plans for us. He has purposes for us. He has vision for us. He has things for us to do. He has work that has already begun in the sanctification of his people, in the conversion of a handful. He has work that has already begun in the teaching of the saints and the training of the saints for the work of the ministry. It's a small start, but don't despise it. Don't grow weary about it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe your heart has hoped that by now, you know, ARC would be a church of 5,000. You know, we, we build it and they will come, you know, and, and we have a couple of services and, and all of a sudden the whole neighborhood is in, in this building at Anacostia High School. May the Lord do that. But if he takes his time in doing it, may we continue to praise him. May we continue to rejoice. May we continue to exult in our God for he is good. And his praises are meant to go up forever. Let me say a word to the leaders of the church as a four. I'm going to give you five. I said four, I'll give you five. It's a bonus. Just a fourth encouragement. ARC. And the leaders of ARC. Matt, Andrew, Jahil, Jeremy, Thabiti, Nick, the deacon, and the future elders and deacons. Brothers, let us not grow so discouraged as to let the work linger. Much of the opposition when Satan comes against God's people is aimed directly at the leadership. This is why the word comes, I think, first to Zerubbabel. And this is why in chapter 3, Satan appears next to Joshua, the high priest, accusing Joshua. Christian leadership is not easy, beloved. There's no smooth sailing. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of hardship. And there's a lot of opposition, sometimes from inside the church as well as outside the church. We have, by God's grace, not known that as a church family. We have, by God's grace, I think, as leaders, been given some measure of grace to, to lead well so far and to persevere in the face of troubles that we've seen. But, brothers, there will be more. The hardships will seem harder. Uh, the difficulties will seem more difficult. Uh, the, the broken places in our community, in our church, in our own hearts, will become more evident. Let us remember God's word to Zerubbabel. He will strengthen our hands. He will keep us shoulder to the plow. He will enable us to lead his people. He will enable us to finish the course that he has marked out for us. We are building a temple which will continue to be built until Christ comes. He may call us home before that's done, but our work, our work will carry on to its completion. He's begun it. He will finish it in us. And beloved, if you're here and you're a member of ARC, you're thinking about joining ARC, uh, pray for us as leaders. I, I don't feel any sense of uh, I, anything that would hinder me from saying, pray for us. <laughs> pray that we would be faithful men of God. Pray that we would know how to love God's people well, would love you well. 
pray that we would not bow in any way to the pressures of culture, but we would find our knees and our arms strengthened by the power of the Spirit and God's Word. I pray that our leadership would be a blessing to you and that you would flourish beneath these men of God whom you have called and God has called to serve you in this way. Pray for us that our work would be a joy and pray that that would be an advantage to you, as Hebrews 13 says. A fifth and final thing, an application for us. Beloved, let us feel the security, the comfort that comes from knowing that each person of the Trinity watches over us. The Father's eyes, you notice there in verse 11, they range through the whole earth on our behalf. The two witnesses, the Son and the Spirit, stand with Him as Lord of the whole earth. Anything we need, God has. Everywhere we go, God sees. His presence is our comfort and our strength. We are not alone, beloved. Even if you find yourself at times the only Christian in a room or the only Christian on the block or the only Christian at your family's Thanksgiving dinner, beloved, you showed up with God. Any Christian plus God is the majority in any room that they're in. This God will not forsake us. He does not overlook us. He is with us. Let us draw confidence and comfort and security from knowing this God watches us. And my friend, if you're not yet a Christian, Zechariah 4 has an important application for you too. You see, beloved, you too must stop living in your own power, in your own strength. A life lived apart from God is a life lived in human strength. And your strength, just like our strength, will not produce God's will for your life. In, in fact, everything you do while going your own way in your own strength is the Bible's definition of sin. In your sin, you're not pleasing to God, but angering God. You, like us, need the power of God the Holy Spirit in your life too. And you need the grace of God too. You need God to be kind to you in your sins rather than being just to you and punishing you because of your sins. And the grace or kindness of God comes through Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross for your sins and my sins, he was showing grace toward us. In taking our place on the cross, in suffering God's punishment for our sin, God was giving you and I grace through Jesus. He was punishing Jesus instead of you. God did that so that your penalty would be paid in full and so that you could have several other gifts from God. There are too many to list, but let me give you at least three. You'd have the gift of complete forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future. You would have the gift of a perfect righteousness, which did not come from you, but came from Jesus' perfect obedience to God. And perhaps the greatest gift, you would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. That God himself would come into your life and live in you, and make you a temple for his presence. 
These are the gifts that God offers through Jesus, his son, who was crucified for our sins, buried and resurrected for our justification and eternal life. And beloved, when the spirit saves you, he places you like a living stone into this temple, the church, which he is building. And when the spirit saves you a a, a part of the temple and makes you a part of that temple, he will fill you with his glory. So, beloved, if you're not here or if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we can't think of anything for you to grasp that's more important than this. That Christ will and wants to make you new. And that by the power of his spirit, he will raise you from the deadness of sin and make you alive to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he calls you in the power of the spirit to repent from sin and to place your faith in Christ and to follow him in the obedience that comes from faith into the eternal life that he has prepared for those who believe. If you want to know more about that, talk to any of us after the service. We would like nothing more than explain this more clearly. So, in conclusion, all the Lord seeks to build, beloved, he will complete. Though he uses his people to do it, The power comes from God himself, from the Holy Spirit and his grace. So don't, let us not get discouraged in our work for the Lord. ARC, what we do for the Lord will succeed. We we cannot fail because God has owned his gospel and God has breathed power into it by his spirit. He has sent forth his word and it will accomplish what he sends it forth to do. And all the world will know that he is the Lord of all. May the Lord build his church in this place. Let's pray together.